Egypt. There's also a lot of ramifications to what it is that they are leaving. So um, let's just look at these couple of verses first. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Could somebody um, read that for us? Somebody just stand up and read it out loud for us. So, during that long period of time, simple story, uh, Abraham, who we encountered last summer in the book of Genesis, he ended up having a family. God had promised him in his old age that he would have a family. He did. He had a son. His son had sons. Uh, They grew to be known as the 12 sons of Israel, ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel, they grow to about 70 people, and when they're at 70, there's a famine in the land. <clears throat> and because there was a famine in the land, they went down into Egypt to find food. And when they, found, when they went down there, they found their brother was there. And that was a great story of finding that Joseph had been prepared to take care of his family through that famine. And they were given some choice spots, and they were treated, well, they were treated really as celebrities. Pharaoh was really happy to meet them and happy to see them and happy to interact with them, and they got along great. And they grew, and they grew, and they grew. From 70, they grow to at least 600,000 men, and however many women that is, and however many children that is, probably three and a half million people at least, they grow too. Uh, they grow, they're in relative peace. 157 years they're serving in bondage and they're getting tired of it and they're crying out to God. And that's where we pick up, where it says that they are crying out to God. Now, what we're going to try to do is shift the way that we look at the book of Exodus a little bit because we look at the scripture so often as applying to me, my salvation, my life. And we teach it that way and we preach it that way because that's what the passages say. That God so loved the world that whosoever, that's a single person, right? Like whosoever, a person. Uh, And there are many scriptures that just talk about me and my relationship with God. Well, in the book of Exodus, You need to look at it a little bit differently and you need to see the world a little bit differently because this is really the story of a people. Because Abraham's family grows. And when families grow, when they're overgrown, they grow into tribes. Uh, Tribes, when they're overgrown, grow into what are known as nations. The Bible, the word for nations in the scripture, all from Genesis to Revelation, is ethnos. That would be the transliteration from the Greek into into the English, ethnos, which means swarms of people. Nations are swarms of people. And there can be lots of different swarms of people within the context of political boundaries. The United States has a lot of nations, a lot of ethnos, a lot of swarms of people living within political boundaries. But this is a nation of people. This nation of people, they're going to become a country. 
What, what's the difference between a nation and a country? Well, a country has political boundaries. And so they will turn into, in the book of Exodus, they will turn into a country. So they would have been a family that became a tribe, that became a nation, that becomes a country. So in this particular passage, this group of people, this tribe of people, this nation of people are crying out to God in their distress. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, 157 years of it, and they cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and was concerned with them. Now, I know that when we look at the book of Exodus, and we see that they were slaves, and we take the typology and we take all of the things that are there. We say, this is a picture also of us of being delivered from our slavery to sin. It is. It's a picture of us being delivered from our slavery to sin. And Pharaoh, of course, becomes a picture, becomes a type of Satan, the great oppressor who's ruling over us and ruling over our individual lives. But this is really about a people who are in slavery. And it's going to help us a lot to just remember that as we go through this particular book. And sometimes all people have, sometimes people are in such mortal danger that their only hope is to pray. Well, that's not my line. I lift that, that line from C.S. Lewis's This Hideous Strength. And in that story, the powers of evil have descended upon England with the intent of destroying creation and to reduce people to a machine. And over against the forces of evil in that book, stands this small little group of people, virtuous men and women. And the forces, of, uh, the forces of evil that they're against, they feel powerless against the onslaught. And towards the end of the book, um, one of them says in despair, no power is merely earthly, will, no power that is merely earthly will serve against this hideous strength. And that's how these people feel, that there's no mortal power that will serve against this hideous strength. Pharaoh, Egypt, what could they do? What could they do? And so one of the companions in that book, he says, then let us all turn to prayer. And so that's what they did. They turned to prayer. And it should be said that this particular passage, it was to prayer that the children of Israel turned when they were slaves in, in Egypt. And their cries don't go unheard. God hears them, and God cares about them, and God cares about the needs of the people, the slave people, and the time of their deliverance has come. But even once they're delivered, there's going to be a lot of transition, and they're going to have to learn to live a new life in a new land. And, and we should know that this particular passage of Scripture, particularly these couple of verses, have inspired people throughout the centuries. Groups of people, enslaved people. The, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, still haven't forgotten these verses. They celebrate every year the Passover. And the Passover reminds them that they were slaves in Egypt, physical slaves in Egypt. And that they cried out to God and God delivered them, brought them into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years and there's sort of reconstruction movement going into the land. And there they learn how to live differently. <clears throat> and so throughout the centuries, 
We look at this so often individually, but through the centuries, there have been all kinds of people that have looked at these passages as a people, as an oppressed people. Same thing happened in our own nation. If you listen to a lot of the spirituals, you know who the hero in the, many of those spirituals are? Moses. They're all singing about Moses because Moses is the deliverer and he delivers the people wholesale. Now, many times if we're not in bondage corporately, we see Moses is a picture, a type of Jesus. He is. Jesus is a deliverer. Jesus delivers us out of the slavery of sin. Jesus delivers us out of the domain of Satan. Jesus brings us out of Egypt. But for some people, they have seen themselves as enslaved, and this has really been an inspiration to them. And many of the songs that are sung come from the book of Exodus. The heroes are from the book of Exodus. There's even a Catholic priest, um, Guteraz is his name, and he um, saw this passage this whole book, as belonging to a people, and he was, he was telling people when, you know, 100 years ago or so, Northern European and uh, North American uh, business people were buying up land like crazy in Central America and in the islands to the place where they owned islands. They owned countries. There was no place you could live that they didn't own the land. And and they started to see themselves as an oppressed people calling out to God. And Guterres said, there's a great long tradition of that, of people together calling out to God. So keep that in mind when we're reading through Exodus, that yes, there's an awful lot of personal application, but there's also application as a people. And see it as a people and see how maybe that might turn your thinking around about a lot of things. There's a great book that's called Reading the Bible from the Underside. <laughs> Reading the Bible from the Other Side. You know, it's, uh, there's something here for everybody. God understands things, and God understands us. And history hasn't changed. History hasn't changed. History is very simple. There's always been uprisings against the people that are there. There's the... the the oppressors and there's the, the uprisers and, you know, it's just go, going on forever. Well, these people have no way of uprising. They can't uprise. What can they do? Take bricks and, and fight Pharaoh? Take bricks and they could. And who knows? Maybe it's more dignified to die fighting with a brick for your freedom than to, to live like that. But, but they have no way to uprise and God becomes their deliverer. God becomes their deliverer. There's great lessons there. So we're going to read on a little bit further, and we're going to see today that God comes to Moses. Moses is all prepared. So there's so many lessons on so many levels here, and how do you want to see it, and what eyes do you want to look at it from? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at it. We're going to see that God is coming to Moses, which means that God always initiates, and God is the one who's initiating deliverance. And God gives Moses something to do. I love that. And he gives him something to do. God is into giving people something to do. He likes people to do things. He created work. Now, the curse came. The curse came, but God likes work. He said that God is always working. Work is good. The curse is, the curse is tough. And Moses has some objections and some questions. And what we're going to find out is that God answers his objections and God answers his questions. Which to me says that we shouldn't be afraid to ask God questions. And we shouldn't be afraid to look at the scriptures and to ask questions about them. Well, what does that mean? 
What am I supposed to do about that? Moses is like, who am I? And, and who are you? So let's read verses 1 through 6. How about if somebody, again, wants to read that uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So are you going to read this? Are you going to read these passages as a 21st century individual who maybe you're a Christian sitting in the room, maybe you're not? Or are you going to read it and understand it as an enslaved, oppressed people who this hideous strength is against you and there's no way for you to bring about your own deliverance? How do you want to read it? Maybe read it both ways. But uh, let's read verses 1 through 6 and see which eyes you want to see it through. So, uh, so how, how, do you, how do you know that that's how he enunciated it? <laughs> oh, you hear your father's voice. <laughs> uh, this, might, this might reveal more about my personality than you want to know, but, but, but I hear him saying, shh, shh, hey, Moses, 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 shh, shh, over here. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> What's that? Uh, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> but, it, but again, it comes down to how do, you, how do you see the scriptures? How do you see what's going on here? What eyes are you seeing them through? And, but I would encourage us to see them through the eyes of an oppressed people. Because that's really what the book is, that's really what the book is about. So when God comes to Moses, who's not with his people anymore, he's not with his adopted family, the Egyptians, and he's not with his natural family, the Hebrews. He is now sort of in no man's land. And and I like to speculate and think, what was it like for him? Is he is he lonely? Is he depressed? Is he hopeless or has he just settled in and resigned himself you know this is just the way it is I don't know but uh, Moses is out there and he's about his everyday business doing what working God made people to work find find some work find something to do put your hand to it and do it and do the absolute best that you can and God created work and he approves of it and in the midst of our daily lives we can expect God to break in and meet us there are many accounts in the scripture where when God breaks into people's lives and meets them, it's when they're working. This is the same with Jesus. When, when Jesus meets the original disciples, what are they doing? 
you remember what were some, what were some of them doing when, when he met them? Fishing. Fishing. They were working. <clears throat> it was in the middle of their work day. And, and we associate so much of interaction with God and with the movement of God being in church gatherings that we forget all through the scripture that God is always meeting people when they're working, just like Abraham. Abraham's just going about his everyday life and God, God comes and interrupts his life. Moses, same thing. Moses is working. Jesus' disciples, they're working. <clears throat> and so I think if there's a moral to that lesson, it's be where you're supposed to be. Just do what you're supposed to do and trust God that he's going to be working in your life and he's going to do something. It seems to me <clears throat> that Moses has pretty much settled into faithful family life, living daily. You know, his old life, how can, how can he go back? He can't. He can't go back to Egypt. Chuck Swindoll says that the sooner you learn that life is daily, the sooner you can begin to experience real spiritual life. That real spiritual life happens in the daily. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't miraculously break in and you don't have incredible spiritual experiences and some of them <clears throat> so holy or so unusual like the Apostle Paul. You say, I don't tell anybody about what happened with me and God. But... But most of life, the sooner you realize that life is daily, the sooner you begin to experience spiritual life, and you begin to experience spiritual life with those around you. And here, God initiates the encounter and makes himself known to Moses. God is always the initiator. Religion flips it on its head, and we're the initiator trying to get God to respond. It's something that's in our soul, it's in our being. I think it's in our broken being, it's in our flesh where we are trying to do something to initiate God. You know, if I do this, God will respond. If I jump higher, if I yell louder, if I say the right prayers, if I walk the right way, if I do whatever, well, God is the initiator, and we're always responding. God wants to initiate. God wants to be involved in our lives. So there's the Old Testament principle of God coming to Moses, but what about the New Testament? Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came looking for us. So when God finds Moses, <clears throat> Moses does a good thing. He makes himself available. Verse 4, here I am. <clears throat> In fact, we sing a song that starts with that. Here I am. Here I am. I'm available. Well, um, Moses is not unlike us. Because Moses <clears throat> has this supernatural experience with God with this bush. And he says, here I am. Here I am. Well, in a few minutes, he's going to have some second thoughts. <laughs> when he sort of evaluates, what, 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 are the, what are the implications of here I am? But for starters, he's pretty interested in hearing God. In fact, he's very interested in hearing from God until God tells him what he wants him to do. Then he's just not so interested anymore. The burning bush, this tree. He's there on the far side of the wilderness. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. The first church I ever went to was called the burning bush. It was an interesting church, actually. <clears throat> should give anybody encouragement that wants to do something for God, wants to be involved in ministry. The, the story was that there was this guy, Assembly of God guy, just went to church at the Assemblies of God. He used to be a, 
used to be a jazz musician, and uh, he wanted to wanted to reach young people somehow, and he just felt like his church wasn't reaching the young people. He was just burdened with it. Everywhere he went, he just saw young people and felt like they were lost. Started it in Willimantic. He said he was walking down the street in Willimantic, and he heard a band. And the band was in this building that appeared to be somewhat abandoned, and he went in and he asked them what they were doing, and they said, oh, we're just practicing with the band, and he said, who owns the building? And the kid said, my dad owns the building. He just lets us use it to practice. And he said, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, he said, you know, I would like to, I'd like to do something in this building if you guys would help me. And they said, what is that? And he said, how about on Friday night, you guys practice and invite all your friends to hear you to practice. And then after you practice, I'll teach out of the Bible. And they said, okay. And so all these young people came and they practiced, and everybody listened to him practice, and then he taught out of the Bible and gave people the invitation to come to Christ, and some of those kids came to Christ that day. And that began a church called the Burning Bush. And this guy, the church that he started, he never met on a Sunday morning ever. He met on Friday nights, and that's when he would mostly do evangelism. He kept to that pattern. And then on Monday nights, he would just teach through the Bible, just line by line by line. Um, so, in a group, Grew, grew pretty big, actually, and there's uh, all kinds of people that came out of that, young people. So the burning bush. That's a whole other aside. I don't know what it's got to do with the passage, but it's a story. <laughs> it is inspiration, because God will use people. Just step out, just do, just do what you feel you should do. He didn't know what was going to happen. And so why is it a bush, and what does it mean that it's a bush? Well, it's certainly a picture of God, Certainly a picture of God. And there's fire. A lot of times you find God, you know, as this metaphor of fire. There was a period of time when people write worship songs. It was maybe a decade or so ago. It was like everybody was writing like fire songs about the fire of God. And then, it, you know, it moves around. And then the next one is it's water and, you know, whatever. But it's all, it's all God. But here it's a picture of God. And God reveals his power and his glory in a bush. In a bush. It burns, but it's not consumed. Well, Moses probably saw all kinds of bushes on fire. Because, you know, where he is out there as a shepherd, you know, fire start. He's probably seen this before. It's probably not the most unusual thing he's ever seen. But uh, it, it, it burns and it's not consumed. And so it's a miracle in the midst of daily life. What does it do? It does a number of things. One of them is that it reveals God's power over creation. Because who else has the power to make a bush burn without it being consumed? Only God. Only God can do that. And like the bush, God never runs out of fuel. There's just continuous fuel for this fire. It's sort of amazing. It's not, it's not being consumed. It's not burning up. It's burning, but it's not burning up. So, um, this week, uh, I'm so dumb. I, uh, in, the, in, the, in the morning, uh, in the morning, my wife told me, she said, I think the furnace is off. Sure enough, it was, it was cold. So I was like, how could it be off? Like, you know, just start at the beginning. So I went and I kicked the tank and it sounded hollow to me. <laughs> sounded hollow to me. 
So I thought, how did we do that? How did we run out of fuel? Because we're on automatic delivery. So I'm going to call those automatic delivery people, and I'm going to, I'm going to holler at them. You know, how come, how come the house woke up cold? And so I called them up, and I said, my furnace is empty. They said, how can that be? They said, we just delivered 151 gallons the other day. It was, there was fuel in there. And so I looked, and sure enough, the furnace was off. It wasn't the fuel at all. It was me. <laughs> so, so my furnace wasn't working. You see, there's plenty of fuel. I think this is like the bush. You know, there's plenty of fuel, but you get a dumb guy on the other end. So uh, <laughs> all the fuel in the world, you ain't necessarily going to help the dumb guy. So. <clears throat> because, and God always burns bright. And he doesn't get his energy from out, some outside force. You know, Moses was used to this. He knew that you could use flame for lots of stuff. But God's not getting his energy from any outside force. God is the power. God is the energy. It's a visible manifestation of the invisible God, that bush that's burning. It's the place of the presence of God on earth, at least for a moment. Stephen talks about this in Acts 7. When he talks about where is God? Where's the holy place? Well, the holy place here was right there where a bush is burning, where all the sheep are in the middle of the desert. And so it's also, I think, it's a picture of how God uses the simple things to confound the wise. Moses was pretty wise. We're going to find in a moment that Moses says, I, you know, I, I, man, that's like what you're asking is a really noble thing, but... I'm not wise, I'm not smart, I don't speak good. In the book of Acts, it says of Moses that he was, his speech was eloquent. He was just, he was just making an excuse. I can't speak good. He said, oh, you don't need to speak good. I'll get your brother Aaron. You, I'll tell you and you tell him and he'll say it. How's that? No, nah, I can probably say it. So, so God takes the simple things to confound the wise. My friend John, going into, that, going into that building, asking those kids, what are you doing? Just using the simple things, using the band that, I mean, the way he tells the story is the band wasn't very good. <laughs> but God used them to start a movement. That became a movement. It was amazing what happened. It was amazing the number of people that got saved and, and the number of fellowships that grew out of that place. It's the same way that God works in our lives. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to, to confound the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world to despise things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one can boast before him. It's because of him that we're in Christ Jesus. So Moses himself, though, is going to become a flame that can't be put out. Moses gets to the place where he's standing before God in wonder and in humility with no shoes on. Take off your shoes where you're standing is holy ground. And those that learn to come to God in humility are ready to experience the power of God working through them. You see, Moses was trained in the finest education of the Egyptians. We talked about this last week. He went to the temple of the sun. He was trained in everything. He was trained in government administration. He was trained in geometry. He was trained in everything. 
but he's a little bit too high on his horse for God to use him. And so God's going to bring him into the wilderness for a while so that God can use him. Moses saw when he went over that God called him from within the bush. And then in verse 5, God said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground. Where's the holy ground? Wherever God is. Wherever God is. That's where the holy ground is. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus will quote this later when they're talking about God. And Jesus says, God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. That God's talking about these people as though they're still living even though they're dead. At this, Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. God tells him to separate him. Get away. What's going on here? This is the first uh, time in Scripture when we went through the book of Genesis, we called it the book of beginnings and looked at all of the firsts. But this one here is um, where you see God as holy. Don't come any closer. The place that you're standing is holy ground. This is the first place you really find the holiness associated with God. And he tells him to stand back. Well, holy in itself means to be separate. Holy is to be separate. There are certain things that are in this room that you might consider them holy because they're only used for the worship of God. Those little tiny communion cups that we pass out. Like what in the world else could you do with those except have communion? If, if we took baggies and put about 30 of them in each baggie and handed them out to everybody on the way out the door, say, hey, you know, maybe you people at work might want some of these this week. <laughs> they don't want those. Like, they, they only have one purpose. They're holy. They're, only, they're separate. They're, they only serve one thing. And that's for us to signify our communion with God, to experience communion with God. And so it means to be separate. And it, it means that there's a distinction. God is making the distinction. There's a distinction between the creator and the creature. There's a distinction between deity and humanity. God was separating himself to do what? To emphasize the gap between the divine and the human. Here's some theology that you find right here. The only way to come into the presence of a holy God is to be holy yourself. It's the only way to come into the presence of a holy God is to be holy yourself. Well, who's holy enough to do that? Nobody. So people try all kinds of things. Here, throughout the Old Testament, they were trying forever by keeping the feasts, by keeping the festivals, by keeping the days, by wearing the clothes, by eating the foods, doing all of those things so that somehow they can be holy enough, different enough to be able to come to God. And they were different enough. Talk about separate. God had them do things that made them different than everyone else. He told those guys that you need to take the side of your hair and just let it grow and turn into these little curly cues. Now, you know, that sets you apart from everyone else. You know who those guys are when, they, when they're coming to you. Hey, there's the guys with the curly cues. You know, they, they have made themselves separate. They have made themselves different. And it emphasizes the distinction between humanity and divinity. And there's only one way to come into the presence of a holy God, and that's to be holy yourself. And the only way to be holy yourself is to take on the holiness of Jesus. Jesus is the only one that was ever holy, this is why God sent Jesus. He is our holiness. And when we wear him, we are holy and we can come into the presence of God. So let's keep reading. So verse 7. 
Then God said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. People. So now this particular book, this particular passage is dealing with a group of people. It's dealing with the family of Abraham who became a tribe who are now a nation, a nation of people living within the context of, of political borders that are not their political borders. They're the ones that belong to Egypt. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, oppressors, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up into a land that's good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Outersites, the mosquito bites. <laughs> and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So there is something about the oppression narrative that fits into the scriptures. I see the way that they've been oppressed. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Egypt. If Moses could do it himself, why would he need God? Because Moses tried to do it himself. He tried to do it himself. And there, and there is need, and God is going to meet it, and he's going to use a person to do it. What did we read in chapter 2? They cried, and God heard. God responds by sending Moses. There are people crying out today, and God responds by sending some of us to them, like my friend John, who went into that building and started those kids practicing. God sent him to those kids. Well, God sees and God knows. God cares. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Now, what you want to look at, particularly the way that Hebrews write, Hebrews like to use poetry in their writing where they use compare or contrast or they make a statement and then they will multiply it. And you'll see an awful lot of that in the Psalms, like Psalm 1, you know, blessed is he who is planted by the water, but the one who is, and so you have the one and then you have the other. And here you're going to see it sort of move in that way where it's going to be, well, who am I? And then he's going to be like, who are you? Well, he's talking to God. And so all of a sudden, what he knows about God isn't enough. But Moses said to God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign that I, that I sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He's going to come back to this place. You see, Moses had already been trained in the administration of large numbers of people when he was in the Temple of the Sun and when he was living in the palace. He learned how to govern. He learned how to deal with large numbers of people. But now he's getting his backside of the desert degree and he's going to come back to this mountain. He knows where it is. When he comes out of Egypt, he knows where this place is. He'd been living there. And Moses said to God, well, um, let's, uh, can we play with this for a little while? 
<laughs> Abraham does the same thing. God tells him, hey, I'm going to go in and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, well, um, these guys know how to bargain. He said, suppose I go to the Israelites. Let's make believe. Let's just like make believe. Make believe that I go to the, the Israelites and I say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they say to me, uh, what's his name? What's his name? What, sh what should I tell them then? Huh? <laughs> like he's going to stump God. Got a name? What's your email? <laughs> God said to Moses, I am who I am. Well, there's a lot we can say about that theologically. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent, has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, whenever you see that in your Bible, when it's capitals, L-O-R-D in capitals, it's I am who I am. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Sometimes it's Jehovah, uh, Yahweh. Um, what happened was the name of God, they took the consonants out so you couldn't say the name of God. Nobody knows what the name is. They took it out so you couldn't say it. But he said, this is my name forever, the name by which you will call me from generation to generation. And so go and assemble the elders of Israel and say, the God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me. And he said, I've watched over you and I've seen what's been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, all the rest of those, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the elders of Israel will listen to you. And then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, hey, the Lord God of Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey. Well, three days, isn't that interesting? Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt won't let you do that unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand, I'll strike Egypt with all the wonders, and I'll perform among them, and after that he'll let you go. And I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you. Wow, that's kind of interesting. They're going to get back pay for their slavery. I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go away empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, hey, hey, neighbor, hey, how you doing? Good. Hey, got any gold or silver or clothes? <laughs> this is our assignment this week. Because <laughs> you don't want to be hearers of the word. You want to be doers of the word. So go to your neighbor uh, the one you haven't met yet, I, I live in a neighborhood where I've lived for years, and I know most of my neighbors, but there's still a few neighbors I don't really know. I really haven't met them. So this week, go to that one, knock on their door, and ask them, hey, got any gold, silver, clothes that I can have? <laughs> Which you will put on your sons and your daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. Well... This is pretty interesting. God is going to appoint Moses to an impossible task. If Moses could do it again by himself again, he couldn't. He tried to remember he tried to kill the Egyptian. But Moses questions God. Can you do that? Can you ask God a question? Moses did. Moses is like, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God said, I'll be with you. Um, well, what, what, who am I supposed to say sent me? Like just if they ask for like a name. What do I tell them? Can they text you? What do I tell them? <laughs> in this church, some years ago, we started an organization with some other churches. It was uh, 
we wanted to reach the Basque people who are a nation of people. The Basques are sort of interesting because the Basques live in northern Spain and they live in southern France. They live in the Pyrenees Mountains. They've never been conquered by anybody. Hannibal tried to bring his elephants there, but he couldn't, he couldn't do it. They've never really been a conquered people. Um, but they're their, own peop they're their own people group. And they've really been sheltered from the gospel. They've been sheltered from the gospel. So we gathered some churches together and we wanted to go reach them. Now it's hard to believe that there's people who never really, you know, heard that much about the gospel that live in modern Europe, but there they are. And so we gathered churches together and we had some missionaries go out. In fact, Colleen DeVega was one of those missionaries. She was there for six years. And what we did was we paid the full salary of those missionaries, paid all of their expenses, the churches that, that gathered together, and they were able to go over there and, and just minister. So we thought, well, what do we call our little group? And we went through all kinds of names. And we said, why don't we call it international? Because we are international. It was, it was churches here, Spain, and churches from Chile. So international. Um, it was an association because there were these churches that were doing it together. It was voluntary. It wasn't a corporation. It was just something we were doing voluntary. So we were an association and we were doing missions. So we called ourselves I Am, the International Association of Missions. And one of the missionaries told us that he was uh, in Spain and he was sitting with some other missionaries and everybody was going around the circle saying, you know, what agency they were with, like who sent you? Oh, well, who sent us with the, was the North American Mission Board? And, and who sent us was, you know, the, the association of, you know, sending to un, unreached peoples. And he said, I said, I am sent me. <laughs> the International Association of Missions, I am. And so I am is sending me. Um, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Forty years earlier, he would not have asked that question, who am I? He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was, he was trained for the throne. He was conscious of God's call on his life. He didn't know how it was going to happen. And he, he started 40 years ago to try to be the deliverer without success. And he didn't succeed. He, didn't, he couldn't even succeed in burying a guy right. Moses wanted to bury that Egyptian. God wanted to bury the whole Egyptian army. Moses' call was right, but his timing was off. Well, how soon was he? Not just 40 years. 40 years too soon. God not only calls to a task, but the timing is his. And when God works, he can, he can work remarkably fast and efficient. So Moses is waiting 40 years. Moses sought in the energy of the flesh to fulfill the purpose of God. And his question reveals that the second phase, his backside of the desert degree, isn't yet completed. He hasn't done all the prerequisites yet. He spent 40 years in the schools of Egypt training to be something, but the next 40 years he's going to spend in isolation in the desert learning that he's nothing. And the first question he's going to say is, who am I? Who am I? Well, the who am I question... Um, I guess maybe we could ask ourselves that, right? We all have personal estimations of ourselves. Sometimes our estimations are exalted. Sometimes our estimations are too low. Uh, who I am doesn't count in this situation. It's God that matters. God said, certainly I will be with you. It's not a matter of my strength. It's not a matter of my qualifications. It's not a matter of my wisdom. It's not a matter of my abilities. God was just asking for an instrument through which he might do his work. And... Um, the, the question followed the revelation of God. God said, look, 
I'm the God of your forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God that sees. I'm the God that hears. I'm the God that knows their sorrow. And I have come down to deliver them God's true revelation of himself. When Isaiah interacts with God, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Daniel said, man, you know, my, everything that I am has just turned into corruption. Job said, behold, I'm a, I'm a man of small account. Peter said, I'm a sinful man. Paul said, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Encountering God. So um, what, are, what are the conclusions here? You know, one of them is God is sufficient for any task he has called us to perform. Like my friend, just go in and listen to those kids practice. He was a jazz musician going in and hearing these kids. He knew they weren't much, but he knew that God could use it. And God did. God did. So let's think about the account. And let's go Old Testament, New Testament. God is sending Moses to Egypt. But Jesus comes into a world that's similar to the world of the Hebrews. Jesus comes to the Jewish people at a time when they're in bondage to Rome. A time when they're in bondage to Rome, a time of trial and a time of sorrow. And yet God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue humanity from sin and bondage, the incarnation. God had a definite plan to deliver these people, and Jesus had a definite plan to deliver us. Here it's the deliverance of a nation. With Jesus, it's deliverance one person at a time. And Moses is thrilled to hear that God is going to do something through him, but he's not sure he's the guy for the job. Sound familiar? But what are the needs today? I wonder if God could use us the same way that he used my friend going into, into that building with those kids. Well, there's huge numbers of people that don't know Christ. There's all kinds of people that don't know Christ. We meet people all over the place that don't know Christ. Big crisis in the, in the United States today, fatherless children. Every month, 300,000 men become fathers with little or no training to be dads. And a third of them are not going to be living with their children. You know, we work with the, we work with the Fatherhood Initiative trying to take dads and turn them into fathers. And you don't have to be custodial. You don't even have to live in the house to, to be, to be a, a father that turns into a dad. It turns into a dad. We're starting a new thing in, um, uh, in uh, eastern Connecticut with, with, a, with a few other guys. Um, we're calling it Gang of Dads. Let's do a gang of dads. Let's just get the dads together and just be a dad. Learn how to be a dad. Surveying the scene, human trafficking. There's human trafficking all over the place. There's racism all over the place. There's partisanship all over the place. Surveying the scene, there's need everywhere. Send me. Send me. Things we can do right now, we can be like, like, like my friend, be present for young people. They need your presence. Young people need your presence. Be an abolitionist. Learn how to identify human trafficking. Go to ourrescue.org and you know, get the... Take the one-hour training so that you, you'll know when people are being trafficked. You'll be able to recognize them. Be vocal. Be pro-human rights. Be pro-humanity. Be pro-image of God. Be anti-racist. Love everybody. Listen. Do something, anything, and tell people about Jesus who's able to save their soul. Finally, just bring a, bring a friend to church. Change your life forever. So we're going to close with a song and a prayer. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray and sing. Lord, who am I? And Lord, the world hasn't changed, has it? It hasn't changed at all. 
since the days of Moses, 